listening to a Called Collective podcast, where we seek to equip the next generation of ministry leaders. The Called Collective produces multiple podcasts, which you can find in the description below. To learn more about The Called Collective, visit our website at thecalledcollective.org or check us out on Instagram at The Called Collective. and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage, often drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm professor of New Testament and of spiritual formation at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. My guest this week is Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Sarah is no stranger to the show, especially lately because this is the third in a three-week series on the Transfiguration, kind of building up to Transfiguration Sunday, as well as uh, a chance to promote her new book, uh, Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration. Uh, she's got a Kickstarter to support that and get that going. Uh, so check that out. That's going to be running just for a few more days. Uh, so don't miss your chance to support that project. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes as well as if you search Sarah Henlicky Wilson Transfiguration, you'll find it quite quickly. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. If you're enjoying the show today, just make sure to press your share button on your podcast player app and uh, get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening. And enjoy this conversation with Sarah. All right, so let's jump in. I, uh, I'll say a word of prayer in a second. I just want to acknowledge we're not going to read a text on the front hand because the question of this episode is, why does the book of John not have a transfiguration narrative? So we'll be reading some scripture as it unfolds, but that, that's the question that, we, that Sarah wanted to put here in the third episode. So let me say a word of prayer and we'll jump in. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, um, and his presence with us, his dwelling with us, his glory revealed among us. And uh, we simply ask that as we uh, speculate and exegete and explore and brainstorm uh, sermon possibilities, uh, that you would just uh, guide us uh, along the way of all truth. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what do you think, Sarah? Why does uh, the fourth gospel lack a transfiguration narrative? Well, the fourth gospel lacks a lot of narratives. So, <laughs> Okay, first good answer. Yes. <laughs> so actually, I know you, you, are, you are a real big fan of the gospel of John. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about this kind of this working hypothesis I have that, that John's gospel somehow stands between the synoptics, which are more straightforward biographical narratives. Obviously, they leap off the pages of ordinary history by the end and on one side. And on the other side, something like Paul's epistles, where he assumes that you know the life story of Jesus. So he doesn't talk about it very much. 
Like it, he, he, the cross, you cannot, can't have Paul without the cross. And yet he never narrativizes Passion Week or what actually happens or his burial or his resurrection. It's just all, all there. So I was, as I was working through this, I was like, John is somehow positioned right between the two. He's somehow telling a history that isn't always very historical. He's somehow often theologizing, but not in Paul's form of theological discourse often, but in within this context of Jesus' discourses, or maybe it's John the Baptist, some, or sorry, um, yeah, John the Baptist or others discoursing about Jesus. So it's all, I, I, I'm beginning to feel like John's gospel is its own genre that isn't any other genre. And so as examples alongside the transfiguration, like uh, in John's gospel, Jesus has a mother and a father, but there's no birth story. He battles Satan. That's a big part of the story, but there are no exorcisms in John. Um, <laughs> uh, baptism is important to the story, but it seems like Jesus doesn't actually even get baptized. Like there is a John the Baptist story and you hear these John reports seeing the Holy Spirit descend, but not clearly in the context of Jesus yeah. himself getting baptized. He, Jesus gives his his flesh to eat and his blood to drink, but does not institute a supper. That's a huge, huge difference from the synoptics. He does pray about his going towards his death, but not in the Garden of Gethsemane. And <laughs> clearly Jesus is glorified, but not on the mountaintop in Transfiguration. <laughs> so, so like all the stuff that the synoptic stories are talking about do appear in John, but not the way they appear in the synoptics. So yeah, I'm just throwing this out there. What do you think of John as a distinct genre that's positioned, let's say, halfway between the synoptics and Paul? Okay, well, so this is your question to me, huh? Yes, I just love to hear you reflect back. As the supposed host of this show, I'll attempt to be brief. (laughs) Um, Although Johannine literature is not known for its brevity. Uh, <laughs> well, you're a Johannine person. No, see, but I really uh, would like to know what you think about oh, this because it's it just like thoughts. <laughs> I'm sure you do. But the question, especially no, the transfiguration, there, yeah. forced the question on me yes, in kind of does. a fresh and intriguing way. Yeah. Yes, it does. Well, I'll say a couple things to that great question. The first I'll say is that that way of framing it, not in those words, that was more well eloquent and clear, but that way of framing it is how I read the book of John from my somewhere in my 20s till maybe like a five years ago. Um, so that's not an attempt to insult it and say, I've moved beyond it. I, that's, <laughs> that's to legitimize it and say, that's what yeah. all the research I was doing made sense. Yeah, yeah. That's how people were reading John. Yeah, yeah. I've been currently undergoing a kind of pretty radical, like penance and like for Ooh. that approach, uh, I'm calling it penance. Cause I'm like going almost overdoing like an alternative reading. Lately, okay. Oh, I'm so intrigued. Uh, that will that will probably not last. I'll probably self-correct again per my <laughs> custom. So I'm I'm really yeah, repenting of that particular approach. I've had a metanoia, a change of mind. Though I'm not I'm not actually like fully on board with the new way. I'm just doing it as extreme as I can in order to kind of yeah, yeah. render that way optional because that's just how I've always read John right, since right, I was right. a young man. Okay. Um and isn't it fun to be old enough to say since I was a young man, like as if that's a like a real thing now. I can say that. And it actually sounds like, yeah, so this other kid used to do that. And then that kid all the way till my recent adult self, that's how I would interpret it. Mm-hmm. So so riffing off that, something I used to say back then was that John only makes sense to me as so back to the synoptics relation, mm-hmm. right? 
uh, we'll leave Paul aside for a second because I think the analogy Paul is important and I'm still, there's a version of that that I want to fully endorse, but I, I want to okay. get there indirectly. I won't be too long, but. Please, please. I'm dying. <laughs> the, Tell me. <laughs> the relation to the Gospels, I mean, I've, I've always felt that John only makes sense if he n is completely familiar with the synoptics, assumes Agreed. that material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is riffing off it so he can take it for granted and say, oh, I don't need to tell you that because I want to focus. I want to zoom yeah. in and do kind of a different angle. Right. Or that he's completely independent of them and doesn't know them at all. Hmm. Like those are the only plausible explanations. Hmm. Something in the middle where hmm. he's just like uh, one, one, of the, one of the guys in this carrying on these traditions. Right, right. Like you can't account for his vast difference. Whereas like Luke and Matthew, you can make sense of on the hypothesis that they're building on Mark and expanding. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas uh, John doesn't make any sense as actually building on the Mark and foundation. Hmm. He rather makes sense as someone who's like, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm assuming, but not building on. Mm -hmm. Right. Or right. the opposite also works. Hmm. And the, the thing is, I've always said, or he just doesn't know about him at all. I've used to always just kind of say that and ignore it because right. I'm, Obviously, it's written later and because yeah. the theology is so developed, it's you know, it's so mature. You know, I wasn't insulting it. I yeah, was yeah. thinking, oh, it's it's the it's the culmination. Sure. Right. Right. And that's the way I was taught. Well, I think I that's have how, just... how the whole history of interpretation has seen John as the culminating gospel. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. OK. But although now. Strain yeah. Although strangely, also <laughs> as eyewitness in a way, the others don't True. claim the same kind of eyewitness. Right. So John is always this the nearest and furthest gospel. To Jesus, mm. even in the tradition, so even the tradition is confused Intriguing. on what yeah. it really thinks about John. Right, and right. to me, again, there's a problem of the speeches. Okay, so that's what mm. I'm saying. The analogy with Paul is very strong when you focus mm. on the speeches mm. and the fact that the same voice with which Jesus speaks is the voice that you're hearing in First John, which is not claiming to be a gospel, but is right. some kind of cover letter. So, but if you just look at the narrative. To me, John's gospel is the one that makes more sense. Of hmm. course, Jesus went to lots of festivals every year. Of course, Jesus hmm. had been to Jerusalem before multiple <laughs> times. Of course, they didn't have an entire trial on the night before he was. He'd already been condemned to death six weeks earlier. Of course, the, like the politics in John make more sense. The back and forth to Jerusalem makes more sense, which would link with the notion of the beloved disciple not being John, of Z son of Zebedee, but some John, the elder Presbyteros, who is a, a Jerusalemite Christian and therefore is preser preserving Jerusalem memories, Jerusalem-centric stories. All of this, to me, sort of like, like the, the reason for his crucifixion is the, the, the Lazarus incident rather than just the, the temple clearing, which had happened two years before. To me... There is a way of it. Now it's radical and I don't actually think I, I don't even know if I can sustain it, but it's really fun. Or, I mean, let's go back to your thing about the institution of the supper because it's relevant right. to transfiguration. Right. I can't believe we're at 11 minutes. I haven't talked about transfiguration yet, but it's okay. We're going to get there. We're almost there. I think uh, I've set a precedent for the kind of episodes you and I yeah, do together. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, there's no institution of the supper uh, per se. Although there might be institution language that is embedded in John six, which is located yeah. as a pass during Passover, in the, the right, right. feeding the five thousand, located as a Passover scene. But uh, 
Of course, there's also, they're not even having Passover because Passover is a day later in John's chronology. The chronology is different. Right. And the question is, who's moving the chronology? And the notion that that some Roman who doesn't understand how Jews keep time thought that Passover was on a different day, <laughs> namely Mark. Right. Uh, and then just the Passover residences of the Lord's Supper just kind of got a life of their own. Because, of course, the Lord's Supper practice is decades older than the actual writing of the Gospels. Sure, so the Passover sure, sure. connections were there. Yeah. That there's maybe a tendency to want to read that into the history. So to me, I think John makes more sense if, again, bracketing out the discourses, those I think mm. are the developments, right? Those right. are the riff, riffing, the Pauline element that you're mm. talking about. But if you bracket those out and just talk about narrative um, and sayings, because a lot of the sayings have, if you, the standalone sayings at the beginning of a discourse or the one-liners here and there mm. have all kinds of weird, you could see those as er, different versions in Greek of the Aramaic sayings that appear all over the synoptic gospels there are all these connections yeah yeah. it would actually make more sense if these are kind of different traditions man i'm going off i'm almost done i promise uh i'm loving this that 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 actually like john's chronology to me is the one that like makes more sense to me and you can actually fit the others into his whereas you can't fit his into theirs which is why your option is the only other option either he's just not doing history or barely doing history and he's theologizing and being mystical and contemplative and i still like that that's the way i read him for years yeah yeah. or you flip it and that's true of the discourses but actually the narrative works and all the geography i mean he has the best geography and the fact is is mark this is going to be relevant Mm. to i think the sukkot stuff that we're talking about Mm. is like basically mark and and then and and mark and Luke and Matthew building on him basically have Jesus story seems to be at less than a year and everything's building up to Passover and there's no time references throughout. They're right. just in a certain city or yeah. they're it's, you don't know what time of year it is. Whereas in John, you always know exactly what time of year it is. It's winter. Exact. Dedication. You know exa- exact. And you know exactly where he is on the map. So to right. think that John is the less historical yet he's the most geographically and chronologically grounded is kind of ironic. Interesting. This is one. So, okay. Just, enough. Enough. My brain is exploding. Wow. <laughs> last thing. Last thing. Yeah. It seems like it's a vote of three against one. But if you can, if you believe in mark and priority, which right. you had said you did back yeah, in, yeah. it's a vote of one against one. Sure. It's, sure, it's, sure, it's sure. a 50, 50 <laughs> account. You know? Wow. All right. So, okay. Then let, let's use this, the transfiguration, figuration the test case. Yes. Right. Perfect. So let's Perfect. just play with the idea that John has priority in the narrative part, not in the, in, as you said, mm-hmm. in the development of this discourses with the ge- geography and the timing and the idea that he goes to Jerusalem regularly for the p- pilgrimage festivals, mm-hmm. which seemed likely he would be doing. And he does not have a transfiguration story as such. Supposing the synopt Mark is later. And doesn't obviously- mean they're building on him. It's independence is what right. I would assert. Not- so my question yeah. would be then, where do you think the transfiguration story comes from for mark and what is john doing something with the same let's say actual event in history source that then follows different trajectories into john and mark respectively okay so there's two possibilities the second of one of which is the one you were hoping i would give so that it gets us into the text (laughs) uh the first the first answer that i would give to that is that this is the account of the beloved disciple um who lives in Jerusalem. He's the, he's the unnamed disciple alongside Andrew who goes to follow Jesus in chapter one. 
Mm-hmm. He traveled with Jesus some or none, somewhere between none and some up to Galilee. He has connections to Samaria, but very little connections to Galilee. And so, and, and the Transfiguration story is a Galilean story. It's the far northern edge of That's Galilee, right. even. Right. It's so far north as not... Jesus goes in his whole life. So to use a modern uh, a 21st century uh, phrase, uh, it's not his story to tell. Okay. Uh, he's telling a different story. Not even okay. different as if competing. He's telling right. his story. And right, right. he's going to include stories that either have been handed on to him or that he was present for in Galilee. Right. But of course, the one that where, where, where the narratives line up the most is in John 6 when you have the 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 feeding of the 5000 followed yeah. by the the walking on the water so you know that that's one of the most consistent elements narrative wise across right. all four gospels right, right right so the fact that maybe that's just a tradition he's preserving and then riffing on because of the he wants to do the bread of life discourse you know right. which may in fact have been a sermon uh, during passover down in jerusalem that he's sure, <laughs> weaving yeah, into yeah. the narrative that, yeah. so again once you bring in the sermons i'm on board with you have to say there's development here there's yeah, no question yeah, yeah. but uh but in terms of that's how I would say it, because that's what I would say about uh, the other 45 stories that are missing. Uh, <laughs> they're all Galilean stories that are missing. That's what's missing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Nothing missing. Even even they all the, the, the Mark and the, the synoptics have a blind man in Jericho and we get a blind man in Jerusalem. In, so right. you even you have parallels as long as you move geographically south. Right, right, um, right, right. So that's well, that's, that's my... so interesting because Jerusalem is real far south, and Caesarea Philippi is as far north as you can get mm-hmm. without exiting the ancient yeah. territory of Israel mm-hmm. altogether. So, if if there was one story that would be left out geographically, it actually is the Transfiguration story. Yep, on yep. your hypothesis. And so, yeah, and so then also, I mean, you basically can take the first uh, six-ish chapters of Mark, maybe some of more than that. And just kind of plop them in the summer that's missing in the Johannine chronology. Because <laughs> chapter five, uh, chapter. The lost summer. <laughs> well, no, chapter four, uh, no, chapter five, there, there's a little piece between chapter six and seven. Uh-huh. And then there's another one in chapter four, uh, at the end of four, where you have one of the most synoptic looking stories in the John, the, the official son in Capernaum. Oh, right, right, uh, right. So there at the end of four, you can fit the first five, six chapters of Mark. And then there's the missing summer. There's three months. But that that's like about a half a year. More than enough space to jam all the information in from the other synoptics. This is Galilean ministry. I love this. This is so <laughs> intriguing. Wow. And of course, the synoptics all agree that Jesus' ministry starts down south with John the Baptist. Right, so there's right, not, right. they actually agree that somehow he got from down south back up to Galilee. Right, right. So what if that's all just being filled out? Right. And so, since Peter, Peter is so clearly a Galilean and his closest buddies. So, mm-hmm. you know, and if, you know, as the long tradition is that Peter somehow stands behind Mark gospel, then of course, the yep. other, belo- the other beloved disciple would be telling his Galilean centered yep. story as opposed only to a Jerusalem if, story. It only works if it's not, the source isn't the son of Zebedee, but I'm fine with that. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it seems the Zebedee thing seems to be a very Galilean so the, figure too. Right. But let's do the second reason. That's okay. more interesting, <laughs> okay. which is there is a transfiguration-like scene in chapter 12. Is that where you want to go? Well, or do you want to go to seven with the Sukkot stuff? Well, so I think it kind of bifurcates. Like, whatever it is that the synoptic transfiguration story is trying to tell, it comes out 
the, 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 the insights there come out in two different places, two different ways in John. So I think we can go over it briefly because I think we still really Great. should talk about the resurrection. But oh, I tell right, you what, I'll, so I'll do John 7. Got a big agenda. And then, then you do John 12. <laughs> okay. We need a fourth episode, Sarah? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be I'll be fast. No, so uh, so what's really striking is if you pay attention to the traditional Israelite festivals, then Jesus is definitely in Jerusalem for more than one Passover. He's there for an unnamed festival, which I'm just going to decide is Pentecost because it's the only pilgrimage festival that is not name checked. Okay. Um, then in um, he goes in in chapter ten to the feast of dedication, which to American Hanukkah. listeners we completely <laughs> miss is Hanukkah, right? Mm-hmm. I remember that completely blew my mind when I was like, oh, I just suddenly saw Jesus eating latkes and applesauce. And I, I think it was the first time I really got that Jesus was a Jew. Like and It was a little over a hundred year old. It was like a new holiday. It was brand new. And it's time, not mentioned yeah. in the Old Testament. This is weird. Hanukkah yes. is in the New Testament yes. and not in the Old. So that's cool too. And then finally in, in John 7 is very plainly said the Jews festival of booths was at hand. Skenepegia, it has the word tent in it. He decides not to go at first, then he goes anywhere. And then probably what this is drawing on is an already developed tradition that you find uh, recorded later in the Mishnah, which is a water drying festival in Jerusalem. And, and so probably when Jesus is talking about living water, which we already know from John 4 and the Samaritan woman, he likes to talk about living water. He is referring to the traditional synagogue reading from the prophet Zechariah, which is mostly horror and bloodshed. But there is this one very happy passage about living water. And so Jesus is probably referring to himself as the source of living water, playing off that. And now here's a pretty cool connection to the synoptics. Uh, when Jesus cries out about living water, it's Shemini Atzeret, which means the eighth day. This is the culminating mm-hmm. festival day of Sukkot. When Luke tells the transfiguration, he changes what Mark has and Matthew follows six after days. six days on Luke's, Luke says on the eighth day. And eighth day, you know, six, seven, and eight days are all hugely resonant in the Old Testament, but the eighth day is definitely the eschatological day. It is the it is the Sukkot day, right? It's the culmination yeah. of the culmination of everything. And so to me, it's very interesting that that Luke is getting that resonance. And then for John, the culmination of Jesus' Shavuot, or sorry, not Shavuot, Sukkot celebration in Jerusalem is specifically on the, the eighth day, the rivers of living water. So although that doesn't... Um, and the Ezekiel imagery of the river that's flowing out of the temple, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So it's not so focused on mountains or glory, but I think if there is this question about which festival are we in, and in John, Jesus goes to all the festivals and transforms them. But still, we cycle back to Passover. Also, John's story culminates not in Sukkot, but in Passover. Mm-hmm. No, the Passover... Festival connections actually demonstrate a kind of subterranean deep connection between Mark's narrative and John's narrative. Yeah. Which there often are those. We already talked about crucifixion, coronation and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. There, there are these weird, which I think is another justification of, an, of, of John being an early independent gospel, at least its foundation. Yeah. Because you can kind of see Mark growing up and John growing up with similar instincts. And then it's like Matthew and Luke are the ones who are kind of adding in all these traditions that that make yeah. us read Mark differently. If you read Mark on its own and read John on his own, wow, okay, they might actually be trying to accomplish similar things with very different rhetoric, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and if we're allowed to say this, 
because we're not hardcore historical critics, we could just say maybe it's because they both are experiencing the same Jesus, real life and ding, death ding, and ding. resurrection. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Talk to us about John 12, which might be the transfiguration in John. Can I slip one? It'll be 30 seconds. Slip sure. one more thing about, uh, about Sukkot. Just this weird thing in Nehemiah chapter 8. Oh, yeah, that, right, right. Uh, that, that it turns out they weren't practicing Sukkot during yeah. the classical period. So that means that, so even though Hanukkah was brand new, Sukkot was only, in terms of being practiced, was only four or 500 years old at the time of Jesus, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how that played into the more eschatological ways of reading it seemed to make sense because uh, that was a more apocalyptic era in terms of mind, the theology that was emerging after during the second temple. Okay. That was just geek moment. Totally. Um, totally. So cool. John 12, you want to talk about John 12? Yeah. Or do you want to talk about something else? Um, well, if we're, if, if, if John has a transfiguration, it's got to be yeah. in John 12. Yeah. So there's, it's almost the exact halfway point of the book of John. It's he keep, we keep finding out that as the transfiguration not, is in Mark. Mark is dead yes. center. Right. Yes. Transfiguration yes, is yes, dead center yes. in Mark. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. <laughs> not halfway in time, of course. Two years uh-huh. have passed, and now just it's going to be like the second half of John is just a week long, less than a week long. Right. So some Greeks come and ask for Jesus. Jesus hears about this from Philip and Andrew. Again, see characters that don't get press in the other gospels. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Specific named characters, not generic. The disciples said. <laughs> so what so how is it yeah. that John's the less historical one? Anyway. Um <laughs> So, <laughs> so John, uh, verse 23 of chapter 12, Jesus answered after having said every time he can, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. Finally, he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Bing. We got son of man language mm-hmm. and glory, mm. right? Truly, I tell you that less a grain of wheat falls, it's just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, making the very point you're saying he can bring glory to himself alone, but if there's going to be glory for everyone, he's got to die first. Those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it. That teaching appears in Luke just soon after the transfiguration uh, scene. And it appears here in John, similar terms. Uh, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the father will honor. Now my soul is stirred. So this is also the Gethsemane story. Because <laughs> yeah, you don't get yeah. his, this is his Gethsemane prayer. Transfiguration. Yes, I love it. Or the other way around is to say the Gethsemane and transfiguration we're used to is this tradition yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> told differently. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this reason that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The short version of John 17, right? Mm-hmm. Father, glorify your son. The son may glorify you. Then a voice huh, came from heaven. From and this heaven. almost doesn't stand out because we're, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The father likes to talk from heaven. Not in the book of John. This is the only time. Only time. First time. It's only time. time. Yeah. I want, you know, there's like red letter Bibles. I want yeah. there to be like a gold letter Bible with the, the words of the fathers when it's introduced, right? It would only be twice in the synoptics, although implicitly in all the apocalyptic stuff going around the cross. But then once in John mm-hmm. right here. In like you said, perfect parallel in terms of literary center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, between Mark, that's disrupted in the other two, but in Mark, it's uh, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The whole structure of John there. I glorified it in your works, and now I'm going to glorify it in my work of glorifying you. The crowd stood there. They thought it thundered. Hey, there's thunder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Others said an angel spoke to him. So they're debating standard Johannine crowds. Jesus answered, this voice came not, has come uh, for your sake, not for mine. Typical Johannine Jesus. I don't need anything. It's for you. Now the judgments on the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Again, it's all about the enemy, but without exorcisms. Mm-hmm. The one exorcism of his cross is the focus in John. Right, right, right. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Lifted up sounds like exalted. And yet the next line says he said this to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. So exaltation on the cross, coronation is crucifixion, right? So even John's transfiguration has to have a, a cross framing. Bingo. So he's doing the exact same thing Mark's doing. It's just not, it's not transfiguration in the sense that we would think of it as, but to think of it as the father speaking from heaven, thunder goes with clouds. It's all there. It's all there. It's all there. And the glory that is hedged in by the cross. And I mean, even the fact that the the section right before the father speaks is a basically garden of Gethsemane kind Mm -hmm. of troubled. I'm troubled because I'm going to the cross. Mm -hmm. So it's even before as well. Even though a little more right after. Yeah. Maps right on. I mean, again, to me, as a back to your statement of using this as a test case for different ways of reading John, I don't want to camp on that, but just. To no, me, please do, please do. This to me Stake is a your classic. Tents. Come on, well, this is a classic <laughs> case that there's only two options, right? The right. transfiguration story is widely known; everybody knows it. So I'm going to do a little game. This is old man John leaning mm-hmm. back on the the rocking chair and saying, "Well, you know," and he kind of tells it in a weird way mm-hmm. that helps you see something you never saw before. Right. Thanks right. be to God for for old man John. That's one way to do it, right? Yeah. The other way to take it is. There's this is a completely independent tradition mm-hmm. sharing a, a story of a kind of revelation of the identity of Jesus that uh, that's that's centered in Jerusalem, right? That was witnessed by some, but not all. And this story was handed on over the generations mm-hmm. and emerged in a written form that then and at some point bumped into this other written form and everyone's like started scratching their heads. Uh oh, right? We got two different stories <laughs> here, right? Um, and one has information the other one doesn't have. And, and yeah, and then you're, but, we're kind of stuck. So with how to sew them together. So, so I think that means the core of both stories is actually the address of the father from heaven. Ooh. That, that actually is more fundamental than even the glorification of Jesus, whether by speech or by changing of his appearance. The core story is the father speaks from heaven. The word of God. And interestingly, in Second Peter, there's no mention of the cloud, and it doesn't really go into Jesus' appearance. It uses words like majesty and splendor and glory, but it doesn't specify the change of Jesus' appearance. But it quotes but the it word. Does the voice from heaven, which is attributed to the Father. Actually, so Second Peter makes it clear that it's the Father, God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. The synoptics it's implicit don't, in the others because he says yeah, you're my son. A, exactly. <laughs> but they don't actually draw the inference and say Father. Yeah. So that that could actually mean that Second Peter is somehow maybe uh, a third witness that is is maybe maybe if we thought of John as actually being a the same story told John's way, then then Second Peter somehow actually would then mm-hmm. stand between them rather than being derivative ah. and um, you know like having lost some stuff along the way since the original synoptic telling. Of course, father language is explicit in John. 
Yeah, it is. Not but it's for the, the voice, but he says, right. Father, glorify your name. But you're no, right. No, that's my it's, point, is is Second Peter specifies father language, but for yes. Synoptic, it's only implicit. So that, again, places that's Second right. Peter somehow, and also having a voice from heaven, but not a cloud and not, not no account of the altered appearance of Jesus. Wow. It's only around the edges with glory, splendor. Language. Which even if even if sick, I mean, I'm fine with the things being late, but also independent in terms of the way th- traditions right. operated in the ancient world. They didn't have the Internet where you know everything right away um, <laughs> right. or even a printing press. Do, where, do we where know everything with the Internet? Building, Is that what you're saying? Well, you know what I mean? Uh, where the word gets out fast, right? Uh, word word traveled slow in the ancient right, world right, is right. the point, right? And so Second Peter could be late because it seemed to be addressing some later issues. Right. Um thousand years is a day and all that jazz, but it could be a later, but still independent tradition, uh, just as John could be on, on many readings. And that would actually fit that the focus is on the word because you can't see as it, as it, we have in first Peter, you did not see him yet. You believe in him. You have not seen him, but you love him. I've seen him, Peter saying, but you <laughs> haven't, but that's okay. We're actually on the same level because you've yeah. received the word. So this emphasis on the word is important in the second generation who no longer has access to the seeing. Right. Right. right? And as so as, and, and that's a huge theme in the whole book of John, right? It's literally the punchline in chapter 20, right? Blessed are those who without seeing believe. Right. right. So you could say, <laughs> and this works on either hypothesis of John's relationship to the synoptics, that the whole book of John is a transfiguration narrative. It's a whole book. You sound like an Eastern Orthodox theologian. That's that is actually the main, as far as I can tell, the principal Orthodox interpretation of John. Actually, uh, sorry, the Orthodox interpretation of John's Gospel is everything is a transfiguration. The whole thing and transfiguration is the mo- kind of preferred motif. Actually, not just for Jesus, but for us too. That we are we are kind yes. of caught in the wake and yes. transfigured along with Jesus. I, I resonate with that. It, both theologically in general, as well as a reading of John. I mean, the culmination in 20 and 21, what happens in 20, my God and my Lord, the the resurrection at the end, this passage that we just looked at, as well as then all the way at the beginning, which you already referenced, uh, you already spoiled, spoiled at the end of uh, our second episode, is that, you know, he tabernacled among us. Skane yeah. comes back, right? Right, right, right. Um, so, okay, so now we are faced with it. We finally have to say transfiguration, resurrection, yeah. what is their relationship? And I think the the interesting question is, what does the trans, other than the fact that it happened, what does the transfiguration give us, tell us about mm. Jesus that is somehow needed in addition to the resurrection itself? Mm-hmm. You want to try first? What does the resurrection provide? What does the transfiguration? Uh, I could say one thing that comes to mind. It's a revelation that the divine identity that is secured and revealed and perhaps guaranteed, maybe even rendered permanent in the resurrection, per the speeches and acts, right? He's Lord because he's risen, right? That he didn't just become Lord at his resurrection. He already secretly was. And that secret was revealed to an inner circle, to use a Johannine phrase, I tell you this now so that when it happens, you may believe that I am a goemi. And that hence the reference to resurrection on the way down the mountain not being an accident. They're wondering what resurrection could be. That's implying, yeah, you're going to know what resurrection is. You're going to know what resurrection is 
because you're also going to figure out what the transfiguration is around the same time, right? It's (laughs) going to register. And maybe that's why he doesn't want anyone to tell anybody. Don't tell anybody because you're going to tell it wrong. That would be the one thing. I mean, to to use uh, the language of our... uh, parent discipline of systematic theology it's to it's blocks adoptionistic interpretation of resurrection some of which is true there is a kind of installation happening in the resurrection the resurrection is an event that actually does something to jesus but how can we say that in a way that doesn't imply that he's just been adopted as divine after his death right 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 right. yeah which seems to be implied by some of the ways that Paul talks in some ways that the Acts sermons, like you could read them that way. Yeah, yeah. That would be one thing that comes to mind. And that's not that important, except, I mean, it's dogmatically important. I don't oh, know I think it's very dogmatically important. Yeah. I don't know how so, spiritually important it is. but um, All dogmatics yeah. is spiritually important. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, remember, I'm a pietist. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't warm my heart yet, so I don't know if it counts. <laughs> Well, I think that is definitely true. And as I as I warned you before we did this, this is the least developed area because I'm still, uh, as we're recording, working on the book. And so I'm kind of waiting for this final chapter until I've sorted yeah. through all the other stuff. So I think definitely it is securing Jesus' identity before the resurrection. And that okay. does block uh, like just late, late in the game becoming son of God. He is all along. Um, another kind of piece into it. So this this kind of comes around uh, in an indirect way. So I think starting with Boltmann, there was a trend to interpret the transfiguration as somehow a resurrection story that broke off, got lost, circulated, yeah. and then turned into something else in the process. And that has been very thoroughly refuted by biblical critics um, who point out, and I think this is where it gets really interesting, there's a lot of parallelism between Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, but all of those parallelisms are absent with the resurrection. So the biggest one is that there is no voice from heaven. God the Father does not speak, at least I should say, we don't see him speak. It's possible that God the Father speaks to the Son in the tomb, and nobody actually sees the resurrection he take says, place. Get up! Yeah, right. Wake up, son! <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> it's, it's a dad waking up his kid. Yeah, take on that cloth off day, your on, face. on the first day of the week on work day. <laughs> Sabbath's right. over. Let's go. So that's a huge thing. Also, I think this is really fascinating. The risen Jesus, though there is some obstacle to recognizing him, he is not glorious. He is not dazzling. The Maybe the, yes. the young men or the angels are, but Jesus himself, you would think the resurrection would be the place to have the dazzle and glory. And often like in children's book, he is. But actually... Mm. In the in the gospel and the synoptic narratives, it's only in the transfiguration that Jesus takes yeah, on we this read that into it, don't we? Dazzling quality. Hmm. Also, you know, in baptism and transfiguration, the voice from heaven is also identifying him for like uh, to him as son and then to others as son. But there's something about the resurrection that kind of seems to stand on its own witness in yes. a way that. You don't need heaven. And maybe that's because coming back from the dead is even more marvelous than suddenly yes. having your clothes dazzling white more than any bleacher on earth could whiten them. So I, so my, my working thought right now is that the transfiguration actually has more correlation to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus, which uh. cannot be seen by us. 
Good. In the same way that the risen Jesus can be and clearly was seen and encountered. Um, but he is still he's it's, it seems very hmm. important in the resurrection story that he is bodily and recognizable. He eats. You can stick your finger in his wound. He still has his wounds like they have not miraculously <laughs> healed. They're still part of him. So there's something very grounded bodily earthly about the risen Jesus. And even his ascension is taking that version of him. So there's no way for us to behold firsthand actually the the ascended you know uh, after he has ascended after he is exalted you don't see him in that in that mode so i think what the transfiguration is again and this would correlate to peter's misunderstanding it is giving you a glimpse of the eschatological jesus the ascended and exalted jesus but it's there not at the resurrection and and even even the exaltation is surrounded by warnings of the cross to come yeah, you're saying Boltman's half right that this is an anticipation of the later exaltation. It's just not of the resurrection. Not of the which resurrection. Which actually fits because Boltman, Boltman identifies resurrection and exaltation. He collapses the distinction. Right. Anyway, so that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the more fundamental theological error yeah, Boltman's right, making right, right, right. anyway that generates the problem in the first place. Right. Um, but so then the insight, the insight stands that there is something, this is an anticipation of something to come. And that means that that, that what that does, Sarah, is that I love this idea because it places a bunch of texts on the table as transfiguration, transfiguration adjacent that we might not think of. So mm. two that come immediately to mind is the vision that Stephen has. Oh, well, right. We'll throw in there the vision that Paul has. So chapter seven and nine of Acts, as well as the first chapter of the Revelation. Uh, the apocalypse, right, right, right. A vision of a glorified Jesus, right? As well as one more is the kind of coronation scene in the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews. Oh, which is nice. a kind of welcoming him into heaven and all of yeah, right, you know, right. The angels are you know, and today you are my son. Today I've begotten you, which is kind of mm, sounds like baptism or transfiguration, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although the the since GB cared the. I mean, there's some pushback on this coming from some scholars in the last 10 years, but since GB cared for quite a few decades, uh, there's been an argument that the opening chapters of Hebrews is talking about his entrance into the heavenly space, um, not as a kind of eternal generation or as an incarnation scene. Anyway, that's just to sort of just say, hey, look, ooh, to me, one of the things that strengthens a, an idea, like you just had one, one of the corroborations of it is, ooh, that just put a bunch of texts on the table yeah, to look right. for connections, which is really all that we do here is make connections. Right. I mean, that's, that's how so, we, you and I practice exegesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there, yeah. that, that sparked two further thoughts in me. One is that this guarantees the connection between the historical Jesus mm. and the ascended Jesus. The transfiguration yes. fixes their connection, which if you only had the resurrection, you might not be sure that the ascended Jesus and the historical Jesus were actually the same, the same, same figure. Brilliant. And that also means, though, that it actually makes the resurrection even more marvelous because it is so bodily. And this is, again, so hard so hard for our, our Greco-Roman descended people to accept that our expectations are bodily resurrection, bodily healing, restoration, fellowship in the never-ending banquet. We're going to be living in these great eschatological Sukkot. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, so actually the resurrection really needs to bowl the f- bear the full weight of bodiliness. And both the transfiguration and the ascension would seem to us to be different from transcendent to sloughing off of bodiliness. So this gives the resurrection the freedom to be only what it is, really the r- restored Oof 
bodily goodness. And transfiguration and ascension can take care of the eschatological dimension. Gosh, that's so good. I just got that talking oh, to you. So I knew that, that I needed to really talk good. to you before I finished the book because I knew you would help me uh, make connections that I wouldn't yeah. get on my own. Dear listener, don't be afraid. Sarah's book, <laughs> uh, which is being promoted now as about to be released, this is being recorded long before <laughs> this is being dropped. So don't think, man, is this lady still just figuring it out? She's publishing a book tomorrow? No, no, no. We're recording this uh, back in Advent. So we're working way ahead. Yeah, Sometimes yeah, I yeah. don't like highlighting that, but people know about, you know, movie magic, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. She's still working on the book, so it's going to be nice and tight and clear when yeah, it comes out. Yeah, but it's going to be better so. now because of these three episodes with John. One hopes. One hopes. For sure. Well, thank you, Sarah. This was just awesome. That's one last reminder to go check out the Kickstarter in the show notes for this episode, as well as uh, if you just search Sarah Henlicky Wilson and Transfiguration, you'll find it real fast. Uh, support that book that's coming out through the Kickstarter and get a copy of that book. It's going to be really good. I got to get a copy. That's That's really exciting. So... Uh, thanks so much, Sarah. This was a blast, this whole series. And this last one, this last little monster double episode was particularly uh, fascinating for me. So I have I had so a blast. much to think yeah. about the Gospel of John now. Oh, my gosh. Back to the drawing board. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to uh, Todd and Eric and Tom for getting this show started. Thanks for the team at Called Collective, especially Nathan for their production work. Uh, so and we, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.